Good evening. Welcome to the Edinburgh Book Festival. My name is Peter Guthridge. I'm really pleased to be uh, chairing this event with David Simon, who you may know as the executive producer and, and uh, scriptwriter of a little-known uh, series called The Wire. Um, he's actually here to talk about Homicide, which is a, a, a wonderful book that he wrote a number of years ago now, and which I guess started it, the transition for him from journalist to uh, TV and, and, and scriptwriting person. Um, it's going to be the usual thing. We're going to have a chat. You're going to have a chance to ask questions, and then we'll be signing copies of the book later. Please welcome more formally David Simon. Thank you very much. You wrote this a number of years ago. Many, How does it feel many. looking at it now, back in print? You know, it was strange. Um, I think I looked at it for the first time in, in years. Uh, when Canongate was going to bring it out in this country. It came out in this country back in 92, uh, and I think it sold about 11 copies. Um, and uh, we were contacted after The Wire had started its run and had started what, what happened here with The Wire in, in, in the UK uh, had started. Um, suddenly we heard from, from Canongate here in Edinburgh um, about publishing this and The Corner, which uh, was the companion book to, the, to Homicide. And so I pulled it down off the shelf and I was trying to see how, if it felt dated, um, if it felt as dated as I felt it should feel. Um, but death investigation and the culture of drugs, which is what the book is about, uh, or what both books are about, um, they're pretty much the same. I mean, nothing's changed, which I guess we did a TV show about that, so. Um, I shouldn't have been surprised, but nothing, uh, there wasn't that much. I mean, I guess there, you know, back when, this was 1988 in the homicide unit, and uh, DNA testing had just come on the scene. It was, it was not really being used yet effectively by anybody, by either prosecution or defense. But aside from that, aside from a little bit of technological change, uh, the murders, the reasons for the murders, and how the murders get solved, it's all the same stuff. Uh, it, it is the now as it, as it was then. So I was sort of shocked that it didn't, it didn't fall apart in my hands when I pulled it off the shelf. One of the things about that, and this is slightly off at a tangent, is that I think you've said that CSI is not as important as we think it is for these guys. Oh, yeah, no, that, that's always been true, which is um, the conceit of any technology-based narrative when it comes to death investigation is that, uh, that, that the science can solve the crime. You know, what solves the, the crime is going out on the street and, and jacking people up and making them lie to you or tell the truth to you, whichever it, it's going to be, and then bouncing that off the next guy and then gra grabbing the next guy up. And, you know, it, it's interpersonal dynamic. It's, it's witnesses and, and suspect statements and, and grand jury. That's what solves cases. And then once you've identified a suspect, then you get the search warrant. And you, you, you take his hair and his blood and you find out if, you, if the DNA works or, you know, that's when, you know, the print track, uh, the, the defining thing is there is a thing called a print track computer where presumably they, they enter anybody who's arrested, they enter their, their fingerprint in. And if they get a latent fingerprint from the scene, they can then match it up against the entire uh, diaspora of criminality in, in that city or that state and find the guy that way. Um, but the truth is, they put it into the computer and nothing ever comes back. Uh, nothing ever, you know, it's, there's half a million fingerprints in, this, in the system and nothing comes back because you know, they're all smudged, nothing's ever a perfect print, and, and, you know, but if you identify the guy through eyewitnesses or whatever, and then you put it in the print track, oh yeah, then the computer's very helpful. So, yeah, the whole vanity of 
we can spend this much and we can get to the point. It's, it's, it's all just bullshit. Um, and, and unfortunately, a lot of jurors in my country now want that. They want to see the, um, the Jerry Bruckheimer version of justice. So. <laughs> okay, so going, going back to this period, you've been a crime reporter on, on the Baltimore Sun for yeah. a number of years. And, and so how did this come about from there? Um, I, I've, been, I've been the crime reporter for about four years and we had a strike at my newspaper. Um, uh, the paper was making a lot of money, hand over fist, but they wanted to take back our medical benefits. It was the beginning of a long uh, journey into night that, that newspapers were just embarking upon. And uh, I was pretty mad. I mean, the strike only lasted a week in September, but I was, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to quit the job. It was, a, it was a daily newspaper job at a very good newspaper, but nor did I feel like being in the newsroom for a while. So they don't give year-long fellowships, uh, you know, <laughs> they don't give Neiman fellowships to police reporters. Um, so I looked around to see what I might do, and there was a detective named Bill Lanzi, uh, who in, in 85, a couple years earlier, I went up on Christmas Eve to write what I thought was a very, you know, cute column about, um, you know, Christmas in the homicide unit. You know, that's the kind of thing that appealed to me when I was 25 years old. Um, and and I, so I brought a bottle of whiskey up, and partly to say thank you, because all year long you're pestering these guys. It was a you know, 36-man unit. You're always pestering them for uh, information on cases and, and you know, bothering them because you're on deadline. And so I was basically saying thank you. And I, I, uh, I, I brought them a bottle of, of, of cheap, non-scotch non whiskey, um, <laughs> Pikesville Rye, something like that. I brought them a bottle of cheap whiskey. And I went up there, and we all sat around drinking. At the end of the night, nothing much happened that night. There was like a cutting and a shooting, but no murder. And uh, I, um, I, I remember sitting around drinking, and, and Lanzi said, they were talking about something that had happened a few weeks earlier and some crazy story, and he said, man, if somebody got up here for a year and just wrote down the shit that happens, you know, they'd have a fucking story. And I remember him saying it. And uh, so I wrote, in the wake of that strike, I wrote this little memo out asking if they would let me in, the, if they let me in as, an, as an observer, I wouldn't report daily and uh, I would obey all their rules. And um, the only thing I asked that, I said they could have a, a review of the manuscript only to take out evidentiary material in pending cases. That was the only thing I thought they could have a legitimate reason to edit me at all. And in fact, they didn't take out anything because the book came out in 91. So by then, most of the cases had adjudicated themselves one way or the other. But they said yes. Uh, and uh, the police commissioner that did, um, I never really got a chance to ask him why. He died before the book came out. Uh, and the police commissioner who was in command at the time the book came out was amazed that they had let me into the police. Thomas, <laughs> I did. He's, you know, we, it was one of these really, we did what moments of, <laughs> of administrative, you know. It was just really funny when, when, when they came and told him what they had done three years earlier. And did they give you a tough time? I heard something about photographs. <laughs> Um, oh, the, the photos they took of me? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, in the beginning, um, they took a vote uh, on, in the unit. They actually thought, you know, they had a democratic impulse and they took a little informal vote. And three guys voted for me and 33 voted against. Um, and then they put me in the unit anyway, you know, which is, that's what a police department is, you know. Somebody above them wanted it to happen. Um, but what happens after that is you just, you become like furniture. You just show up every day and, you know, nobody stays mad at anybody, you know, if, if you, unless you give people reasons. Um, and eventually I became sort of like, um, 
you know, I was a lot younger. I, I, I was skinnier. I had, uh, I had all my hair. They made me take out an earring. You know, I, I had an earring back then. And, uh, and so I was this, you know, communist, hippie, reporter, liberal freak that they would make fun of. And it was kind of like a bunch of cats that were bored playing with the other cats, and they threw like a little mechanical mouse <laughs> in the room. And I encouraged that. That, that was a good way of, of making myself uh, non-threatening. And eventually, um, you know, uh, most of the people came around. I mean, all the guys on the shift that I was on, all of those 19 guys, the lieutenant and 18 detectives and sergeants, all signed releases. You know, a few guys on the other shift who I didn't get to know, they were wary, they didn't, but everybody on, on Diodario's shift signed a release. Yeah. So. Elmer Leonard tells a story about how well, he used to go out with the Detroit police and they stopped when one night he was running down an alley and he realized he was the only one without a gun in his hand. I yeah. mean, did you get into some scrapes uh, here? Uh, the, no, not really. There were no real scrapes. Um, you know, the thing about a homicide detective is uh, they show up after the bodies on the ground and nobody who's causing any trouble is within a 10 block radius. You know, they're, they're, they're somewhere else burning their clothes and getting their story straight. So, um, you know, it, I, it wasn't that way. I mean, a lot of times the detectives, Baltimore's a very violent city, but a lot of, there, was a, there was one detective, Harry Edgerton, who um, he would often forget his gun. When he'd go to be at a crime scene, and like I'd realize, I'd like see him bend over, and I'd realize his holster was empty. Um, but you know, by the time he got there, there were eight radio cars and a morgue wagon. So, I sort of understood his logic in a weird way. Um, I never had a moment like that. There was one moment where we, uh, these two detectives I w was with, they jacked up a car, and there were four guys in the car. So they were sort of outnumbered, and they asked me to put a guy against the car and search him. And that was that was the moment of um, that was the moment of real comedy of me trying to pretend I knew how to do a body search. And <laughs> that was bad, but um, <laughs> but aside from that, it was it, you know I was most people thought I was a detective. I, I cut my hair, I tried to dress like them, although they said I was very bad at that. They said I, the, the the line the great line from Terry McClarney was, uh, you know, just because we're plain clothes doesn't mean plain clothes, you know. <laughs> Where do you shop, you know? <laughs> but um, I, uh, I, I tried to basically blend in, and I did a pretty good job of that. I mean, a, a reporter standing around is a guy with a notepad, and a homicide detective standing around is, is a guy with a notepad. So it was not hard. Yeah. Uh, what about the emotional toll? I mean, obviously, they're, they're dealing with horrible things all the time. How was that? You know, <clears throat> I, can't, um, I can't lay claim to that. Um, I, maybe it was because I'd already been a reporter for four years, and I'd seen some stuff. But, I mean, the f I can tell you all about the first body. I can f the first murder I went to was a, a drug dealer named Kenny Vines in Walbrook Junction, and he'd been shot in the eye. Uh, and so I remember everything about him, about, you know, that sort of bloody wink he was giving me for the entire, I and mean, we were in his, his apartment for four hours. And I can tell you about the, the, the stuff on, that was tacked to his refrigerator, and I can tell you about the uneaten food in the tray that was by the TV. I can tell you everything about that scene. But I can't do that for the 140th, you know. And that's the nature of being not just a detective, but an emergency room technician, or, or it's, you know, it's not unique to Thomas detectives. The, the emotional cost of doing this book was minimal. Um, I, I think I had the temperament of a journalist, and I, I think I was sort of made for doing a book like that. The Corner, which was uh, about a year in the life of this open-air drug market in West Baltimore, 
because I was dealing with people not just in their workaday world. You know, I wasn't going home with these detectives, you know. It was, the book is about the workplace, but the corner is about the totality of these, of these lives that were under great duress from addiction and from poverty, and, and that's the one where I got sort of emotionally tangled up. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the one that was maybe um, unexpected in terms of what it, what it cost emotionally. This one, um, you know, all the walls they build around themselves, I, I think I was sort of ready to take a trowel and build it myself, you know, yeah. so. When you, were, when you were a crime reporter, had that been what you wanted to be, or that was just your assignment? Well, I wanted, well I, not necessarily a crime reporter, but I, always, I just wanted to be a newspaperman. That was, that I imagined myself being a newspaperman and staying that. And, um, you know, not to, just to correct one thing in, mm. in, in an otherwise lovely introduction, <laughs> I, I didn't really think to myself that I was distancing, I was, it was not an intended part of the journey away from being a, a reporter. I, I, I thought I would write this, I would go back to the newspaper, I'd be a better reporter for having been inside the police department for a year. I would understand things better, there would be more nuance to my reporting. And I did, I went back for three years and then I did the corner and I came back after the year watching the drug war from the bottom up and I was better at understanding other things that I wouldn't have understood just by being in the police department. So the books, I thought they were symbiotic with the newspaper work. And I, th I saw myself going back and forth and, and, and staying at the sun. But, uh, you know, what, hap what started happening with newspapers, or what, what's happened with newspapers, really started well before the internet uh, in the 90s when uh, uh, Wall Street and, and, and profiteering discovered the industry and realized uh, they could eviscerate, qual they, they, you know, we can make, we can make a lot more money with a lot worse newspaper. Um, and that's what they did, and that started in the 90s. So it started at my paper in the early 90s, and, and I, I took a buyout, you know, as the paper started going south. And when you wrote this on the corner, did you have kind of other models in mind? Were you thinking, I don't know, Joseph Wombau or? You know, this is going to sound crazy, um, especially in this country where um, so many people think that, that cricket is a sport. Um, but in, in, Ameri in America, we've... No, this is Scotland. You're okay here. Oh, okay, good. Well, then you can laugh right along with me. Um, in America, we, we, we took what appears to be, has some relation to cricket, but we made it into actually a very wonderful game called baseball. And there was a, there's a, there was a book that came out in like 1970 when I was 10 years old. Uh, and I read it, I guess, a couple years after that. It's called Ball Four. It was by a, a, a marginal pitcher. Um, named uh, Jim Bouton, who was hanging on to the end of his career. He, he, he could throw uh, one pitch. He, his arm was basically wrecked, but he could throw one pitch that went so slowly that the air currents moved it. And it, it was, it's, he was a junk ball pitcher, and he was hanging on to a very bad team that was like at the bottom rungs of professional baseball in Seattle. And the book is brilliant, and it's a year in the life of a baseball player. And the, the, the cast of characters, instead of being a homicide unit, or a drug corner, it happens to be the Seattle Pilots baseball team. And it's brilliant, and it's not just about baseball, which is what I admired so much about it. And I didn't realize this, of course, when I was 10, but I reread it later on, and I realized he'd written a book about what America was struggling with in 1970. These, the players were young, the authority figures were all older, there was this generational disconnect, the war was going on. Um, you know, not getting a haircut as a ball player could end your career. It was, a, it was a fascinating, uh, uh, it just, it was, it was American in political microcosm, in social microcosm. And I remember reading it and thinking, wow, you know, I could never look at baseball the same again. 
and I, I sort of never did. I always had an adult view of who these people, I never, that was the end of hero worship. You know, I could never just go, oh my God, they're so great. You know, they were, they were then human beings from then on. That book stayed with me. So I actually referenced that book in the book proposal that I sent in and said, and you know, this is going to sound crazy because it has nothing to do with sports, but that's what I sort of imagined, which is a year in the life of this homicide unit. Or, and that was, that, and away we went, you know. Okay. I, I don't like to tell you baseball came out of a Scottish game called Rounders, which schoolgirls play, but anyway, we won't go there. <laughs> Rounders. Yeah. <Okay. laughs> um, then this was picked up by, by TV. Um, can you say a, bit, a little about that transition into a kind yeah, of Yeah, well, this, this is really where my career went wrong, is that uh, um, Barry Levinson, who was an A-list director uh, from Baltimore, uh, had, had a deal going with NBC to make a television show. I don't know if Barry Levinson's movies are... are yeah, we know. Uh, okay. yeah, so you know good. Diner, which is a movie sure. beloved in Baltimore. Um, he wanted to make a television show called Diner and, and do it 50, uh, 1959, 1960 um, uh, period of life mm. kind of thing. And NBC looked at it and said no and, and said, but what, what else you got? And at that moment, <clears throat> um, this book wasn't selling. And you know, they were trying to sell the rights and nobody wanted it. And like from the rewrite desk of the Baltimore Sun, I remember talking to an agent saying, well, why don't you send it to Barry Levinson? He's from Baltimore. And it, it came over his transom right at the moment that he was you know, looking to make, a de make this deal with NBC. So it became NBC Homicide, um, uh, Life on the Street, I guess was the title. And uh, that came into town in, in 92, <coughs> excuse me, and started filming. And it was like this weird stepchild. Um, I liked it, I liked the checks, I, I hoped that the show would go, but I never took it seriously as being anything other than uh, a little something extra that might point more people to the book. Um, this, you did this for me, right? This yeah. science? <laughs> I feel so at home. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it, this thing came into town and, and they said, do you want to try to write a script? And, and uh, I did. I wrote one with a friend of mine, another newspaperman that I went to college with, David Mills, and we wrote one, and it was so dark and so depressing, NBC wouldn't make it until season two uh, when Robin Williams agreed to be the guest star. And then, they'll, then, you know, then they were willing to make it. So that was the first thing I ever wrote for television. And um, it, you know, we, did, we did an okay job. I mean, you know, a lot of it was, uh, we made a lot of prose mistakes when you write your first, uh, uh, anything dramatic, um, long passages of quotes and, you know, descriptions that go on ad nauseum. I mean, we made all the, the fundamental mistakes, but the core, the core values in the script still worked. And uh, they offered me another and, another, and eventually it was a slippery slope because, you know, the, news, <laughs> the newspaper was falling apart yeah. in its own way at the same time. So I took the job, but I thought, I'll just do this until I finish, because I was trying to finish the manuscript of the second book of The Corner. I'll do this for a little while, learn a new skill set, but eventually I'll go back and, and go to another newspaper and do what I'm supposed to do. Really? So it wasn't the kind of, oh, this, I've now found my, my metier. I've now wanted to be doing I, this. It was, it's only been the last few years that I've started to admit myself I'm not a newspaperman anymore. I mean, it's, it really does feel on some emotional level like apostasy. I, believe me, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been an incredible run of, you know, good luck and uh, very creative and I've enjoyed it every minute of it. And, I've enjoyed the collaborations on film sets, but it was, uh, there was no plan is all I, I guess what I'm trying to say. No plan at all. 
But I mean, the, the fact that you do now recognise that, I mean, is that linked with the fact that I think journalistic standards generally have kind of gone down and obviously you're critical of that in, in part of the, of, of the wire? I mean, are you, yeah. are you disillusioned about journalism these days? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not, well, I'm disillusioned about the state of journalism. I mean, I still think journalism is essential. I think professional journalism is essential. I have no faith in the ability of unpaid professionals to do that job because it's a very hard job and it requires a, a, a constancy and a, um, a commitment that, that comes from being paid to do it. Um, I would not have gone and spent 14 hours a day, 16 hours a day some days covering the Baltimore Police Department and you know, kissing the ass of this desk sergeant and you know, arguing with this guy to give me a document that I thought I had a right to and then comparing what this guy's lies were to that. I wouldn't have done that for day in, day out unless somebody paid my salary and, and, and my benefits and I could raise a family on it. Um, so the idea that the internet and bloggers and quote unquote citizen journalists are gonna replace that is naive. It's just, it's, it's almost an infantile thought. Um, and yet, that's the argument of the internet, which is that we don't need these professional journalists. The fact that professional journalism has lowered its standards, that newsrooms have been eviscerated, that there are less and less, um, less, and less commitment to uh, being comprehensive and sophisticated and nuanced in journalism. That's a critique of journalism that I embrace as well, but it doesn't argue for less professionalism, it argues for more. Yeah. When you said earlier you, you, you wanted to be a newspaper man, not necessarily a, a crime reporter, what was it? I mean, was it some kind of a campaigning thing or, you know, all, all the president's men kind of thing you were wanting to well, be? Well, that was or? part of it. Um, you know, I, I came, you know, my early, I was born in 1960, so I was, 12 and 13 and 14 when the Watergate story was playing out in what was my hometown newspaper. I grew up in the Washington suburbs. So I read those stories contemporaneously. And I was a 12 or 13 year old who read the newspaper every day. In fact, I read two newspapers every day. It was, that's what my house was. My father was a, he'd been a newspaperman briefly and then he went into PR, needed, you know, my, bro my brother was born and he needed to pay the mortgage. And, but he, he'd always wanted to be a newspaperman, and, there, and these guys were in the house all the time. I had, I had a, uh, a guy who I called my Uncle Pat, who worked for the New York Times, who was the biggest character in my father's life. He was a, I mean, Pat Spiegel, he worked for the Times, and he was just a, you know, he was one of these guys right out of the front page, you know. Um, and I thought that's how newspapers, I thought well, if you get into the newsroom, they're all like Uncle Pat, they're all crazy, you know. And, and, uh, and of course I got there, nobody was crazy, everybody was, was perfectly sane, but um, well, they 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 were not they were not fun crazy. They were just regular neurotic. Um, but um, I did I fell in love with it sort of I think a little bit through osmosis of what my dad brought home, and the fact that it was just always discussed. In order to in order to be in, in my house, in order to be um, taken seriously, you had to be able to sustain yourself in some sort of abstract political argument during Friday night dinners. You know, you needed to to be able to argue that, you know, only a jackass would vote for McCarthy and that, you know, Humphrey was the guy to vote for, you know, or, I mean, this is American politics, I'm babbling, but um, this is what we argued over, um, viciously, um, and, 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 without any, uh, and without any recrimination. You were, you were, you were given a lot of uh, credit in my house if you could hold the floor um, and make a credible argument about whatever we were arguing about, and it was always something. So current events was sort of the, the currency in my house. And, and so I just, I went to high school and there was a high school paper and that was it. I was all, you know, off and running. I never really gave it a second thought. Yeah, yeah. 
And then when you when you got into TV, what, was that a difficult world to negotiate, or was it was it more ruthless than newspapers, or just the same? Or? Well, there was a lot to learn, and I didn't learn it all at once. And in fact, um, uh, I had really good mentors: uh, Tom Fontana, who was the showrunner on Homicide, and his partner Jim Finnerty, uh, who was the production uh, uh, line producer. Um, they taught me that it, you know it's a different medium. You, you pros can do things film can and uh, can't and, and film can do things that pros can't. And you have to know where one ends and the other begins and not try to force one into the other. Or, or It's hard to explain, but um, what, I, what I realized was I was pretty good at thinking visually and I, was, I had a good ear for dialogue. That was the only skill sets I had. Uh, and I didn't know that I was good at either of them. I knew the dialogue part from the books. I knew I could catch, you know, I was good at catching quotes. And then once you catch quotes, you realize how people talk. And, um, but the visual part, I had no idea until I actually had to start editing film. Um, and that, wasn't, that was like three years in. You know, at first, you just write, and you write dialogue. And then, then they say, OK, now, you're, now we're going to send you to casting, but only for the little parts, only for the day players. Yeah, they give you just about as much as, but what they're eventually training you to do, and what Tom trained me to do is you, you learn to produce in television to protect the writing. Because when you write a script, the script is just the script. It doesn't mean anything. You know, you can, I, could, I could show you a script of The Wire right now and tell you, man, this is really good. This could be really good. If, we, if, you, if you give me $40 million and let me film a season of this, you know, you'll love it. You know? but, but the script is just nothing. It's, it, it, you know, until it's executed, and it's executed in a communal way. Um, you know, we had so much to do with Omar when we wrote him. But then Michael K. Williams played him a certain way, and that, and that became... Uh, a loop between the, the, the writers and the actor. And then he, he's, he's directed a certain way, and then it's cut a certain way by the editors. And pretty soon the creation is, is uh, it's not one person's creation. That's fun in a way. Um, you get surprised by things. But it can also go really bad. I mean, you can also be, get nothing of your intention by the time the process uh, works its way out. So if you can be in charge of the process a little bit, you got maybe half a chance of what you originally wrote coming out on the other end. Yeah. You brought up the wire, so can I just ask you a couple of questions about sure. the, the wire? Um, how was was that an easy sell to the to HBO or to anybody? Um, it was not an easy sell. Um, it was hard to explain to them what. And, and at first, we didn't say we're going to build a city and, and critique um, all of these paradigms of, of uh, you know social, economic, and political uh, dystopia. We, you know. Mm. Nobody tried to make that. You go into a pitch meeting in Hollywood and you, you try that and they just laugh you out of the room. <laughs> so we said, no, we're going we're gonna to invert the cop show and we're going to basically critique the drug war in the first season. And it was only midway through the first season when they said they were interested in renewing for the second season that we had that second conversation about what we would build long term because I was afraid to have that conversation at first. I thought, you know, I'll scare them out of the room. Um, but we, we, we did know what we were doing because... In a way, we had the source material for The Wire was homicide on the one hand for the police side of it, and the corner on the other hand uh, for the, for the uh, street corner culture and the drug culture. Um, so we had, I mean, a lot of, you know, people will recognize stories from the two books that made their way into the television show. But the other thing we had in the end was uh, we had Ed Burns, my partner, uh, doing that was a homicide detective for 20 years who did wiretap cases. And also taught school for seven years, which came in handy for season four. 
Uh, and then we had the, the, um, the work of, of uh, these incredible novelists who uh, you know, I'd long admired, and, and, uh, or who I, in the case of George Pelkanos, um, I'd grown up right near him. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't start reading him until late, but once I did, I realized he's digging in the same mine uh, and, and pulling out the same ore as, as I've been pulling out in Baltimore. And, and uh, that was a natural ally to try to do this. And then George said, you know, let's go get Richard Price. Let's go get Dennis Lehane because those were, you know, uh, and, and Richard was somebody that I'd read since Clockers and, and loved. And it would never have occurred to me to do that in that on some level I still had the shame of, well, I'm writing television. You know, how am I going to ask? It was enough to ask George Pelicanos to write some episodes. That, that felt like a leap. You know, I'm now going to go ask, you know, uh, Richard or Dennis to, you know, but George felt like we could do it, and that really was George bringing it. So then we had, we had all of their, um, all of the work they had done in researching the work they'd done on their fiction. So it was, it was a real, what we had was a real, um, uh, 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 we had a lot of material in yeah. our heads. And, and that's what makes a show good, is different people in the, in, the, in the writer's room arguing with each other. With every argument, it gets better. And some of the arguments are awful, but without the arguments, uh, you know, it's just too thin. You can't do 60 hours of television based on one book or two books or one guy's view of the world. You know, everything has to be challenged. And so the writer's room was, became all important. So, so how, did that, how did that work with those, with those writers? You, you were all together knocking out ideas and then they'd go off and, and write their own free script or you, were kinda, you had a, you, you a kind of structure worked out for an episode that they um, went In the beginning wrote. we would have meetings about what are we trying to say with the season. Um, and, and, and those would begin with arguments about politics. I mean, we would, not, we would not be arguing about story yet, we would be arguing about... Um, <laughs> about educational policy or um, the media or uh, 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 the, the death of work and, and the decline of the working class. We'd have those fights about, you know, what do we all believe is true? You know, somebody would say something that other, somebody else would challenge. First, we're arguing about what the content should be. And that's, that's, that's something that doesn't really happen in television. You know, mostly you're arguing about how to keep the show on the air. And that was the one thing about The Wire that you know, we, we wanted the show to succeed. We wanted to be able to get to the end on our own terms. But we didn't look upon it as, like, our job is to protect the franchise and keep it up forever and ever and ever. You know, our job was to tell a story that we actually felt was worth us spending years working on it and then other people spending 60 hours of their lives watching. It was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, they like more Omar, give them more Omar. You know, that, that's what most TV shows do, you know. Tell us what you like, we'll give you more of it. Um, which is what the entertainment, the entertainment industry is about. But the impulse behind this was more uh, journalistic and literate. It was what is the story that we should tell mm. and what would be the best story. And that was pretty liberating once, once we started operating on those terms. Um, and saying we don't, you know, if, and if we get canceled, we get canceled. Fuck it. You know, that, that was really our attitude. And, and so that was the beginning. And then from there, you well, what characters do we need to tell that story, and where should we place the characters, and who's, what new characters do we need to bring on in order to achieve that story? And then you start beating out individual episodes and sending writers off to, to write those episodes. But the, the, the heavy lifting is in the beginning of this season. Yeah. And you famously said you, didn't want to, you weren't bothered about an average audience. No, actually I said a casual 
viewer. I said fuck the casual viewer. Okay. Um, <laughs> some, some fella from the uh, Guardian, um, there came that moment where first I was the best thing since sliced bread, but then there's the, the guy who has to get in there at the end and say, you know what? He's also a son of a bitch. You know, he's like the last, I'm the last in the door, so I got to have the, the new, t so the guy whose job it was to say, you know, I've actually gone to Baltimore and this guy's a son of a bitch. Um, he changed it very subtly from fuck the casual viewer, which I mean sincerely, if you're a casual viewer, go fuck yourself, um, <laughs> to fuck the average viewer, which is snotty and arrogant, you know, fuck the average, I mean, you know, hey, we're all average viewers, all, every last one of us. You know. And presumably, we're all above average in this room, but, <laughs> but, but, but casual is, is what I meant, you know, if, if you, you know, we're really serious about telling the story, it's going to be complicated, we're not going to hold your hand, on the other hand, we will reward you commensurate with the amount of time you put in. That was the deal we were offering. Um, and a lot of viewers took the deal and a lot of viewers walked away. And we accepted those terms, that we weren't going to get everybody by making it this complicated or, 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 or this interior. Um, but, you know, we understood that it was, that what we were saying was, you can't write for the guy who wants to do his laundry or or you know, go to the bathroom four times, or or, or have a conversation. I can't, I can't, you know, I, I can't write. I can't write a book for that guy. I can't write. I can't write a Sunday newspaper article for that guy. Uh, maybe I can write a Sunday newspaper article for him, <laughs> but not a long one. Um, you know, it's, it's not the audience you have in your head when you're trying to convey story. Yeah. So you know, it wasn't saying, you know, we only. I wasn't doing a, a spinal tap and saying, we only want. You know, our audience is becoming more selective. We only. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't trying to limit the audience, but I was saying, you know, the usual audience for TV is not what we're going for here. Yeah. I assume the mayor of Baltimore is a big fan. Loves him. <laughs> Loves him. We're like this. Um, yeah, no, he's not happy. Well, actually, no, he's now the governor, so. Oh. Yeah, so. But, I mean, presumably, I mean, he had to give you permits and stuff, so obviously there was something going uh, on. He did have to give us permits. He tried to withhold the permits the second year, and, and that, that that led to a moment of, he, 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 I stood on a parking lot for 45 minutes on my cell phone while he screamed at me for the content of the show. And the, the joke of it is, I went to him before I turned in the pilot to HBO and I said, I can do this in any second tier Rust Belt American city. It doesn't have to be Baltimore. You guys have had two bites of the apple with Homicide and, and by then The Corner had been a miniseries on HBO. And I said, you guys had two bites of the apple. If you don't want the third, I understand. I can make this in Philadelphia or Cleveland or St. I can make it anywhere. Um, no, 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 do it here, do it here. We want it here. We, we love having a film industry. See, so, okay. Um, and I told him, I said, it's a darker version. of It's, it's down on the drug war. It's, it's about, you know, some, some dystopic things. I gave him every warning. At the end of season one, he called up screaming and said, we don't, we don't want to be in the wire business. And I said, well, I can't take my sets down now. We were two, two weeks away from filming the port season. And we had access to the port because that was state controlled, uh, port, uh, port Authority of Maryland. Um, and we, uh, we had our interior sets which were built in Baltimore County in a big warehouse. So it really was about the exterior shots of Baltimore. And we actually started uh, scouting South Philadelphia where there were row houses because we thought we were going to have to film there. And uh, after 45 minutes of yelling, I said, well, you know, I, I will move to Philadelphia by next year completely, but I'll, I'll shoot the exteriors there this year if I have to, and, and the mayor said, well, and then it'll be Philadelphia, right? You'll be writing about Philadelphia. And I said, no, McNulty's, <laughs> McNulty's a Baltimore cop, and the story began in Baltimore. 
And there was this pause. It was on speakerphone because I could hear them all buzzing in the mayor's office. And the mayor said, uh, he said, well, so Philadelphia would get the money for you filming and it would still be Baltimore. I said, yes. <laughs> and our, our permits were, and I never heard from him again. <laughs> You're a very cunning man, sir. <laughs> he backed into that one. I, it was not my cunning, right? <laughs> and, and then you moved on to to the Iraq war. Can you say a little bit about that and, and also oh. what you're planning about? Well, that's someone else's journalism. Uh, Evan Wright wrote a wonderful book about modern war um, called Generation Kill, about the uh, first re reconnaissance marine battalion. And um, um, HBO had bought the book. Actually, they bought it when it was just magazine articles, before it was even a book. And, uh, and they came to me with it. And um, uh, Ed had been in Vietnam and has a, uh, a background in in, in the military, and, and uh, while I didn't, and I, you know, that was not enough for me. I, I said, if, if Evan will come along on the journey, if, if he'll be in the writer's room and stay with the project through editing, because I didn't trust, you know, it's like, that's not my level of experience, and, and I was very scared of getting that wrong. So I was very glad, and Ed, Ed and Evan came along for that ride, and, and uh, um, I'm very proud of that. Uh, I actually think that, um, it ended up saying something about the nature of war that, uh, like like everything else I do, you have to wait till the last episode to, to see what the see where the circle goes. But I think for people that hung in there for seven hours with these Marines, I think you know you don't forget them very easily once you've spent those seven hours with them. Mm. And the next project is the New Orleans one with, about musicians in New Orleans. Yeah, about uh, m m uh, musicians post Katrina um, in a city in an American city that. Uh, maybe culturally matters uh, more than any other American city um, we have. Uh, is that based on a book or is that from A to B? No, that's just from, uh, I've been going out of New Orleans for years and, and Eric, Eric Overmeyer, who I'm doing it with, has a house down there and he's been a New Orleanian for many years. And um, you know, what happened in Katrina and what's happened since with the city is very emotional <laughs> to anybody who knows New Orleans uh, and very indicative of how hollow in some ways uh, American uh, culture and American will even ha has become. Um, so there, there's, there's a lot to say about that. But the other thing is just, um, you know, one of the things that I think The Wire may not have conveyed outside of if you weren't a Baltimorean. If you're a Baltimorean, you can see things in The Wire and they're very delicate and they're very small, but they're basically part of, it's a little bit of a love letter to the city, believe it or not. I mean, I, we were joking about how the mayor hated it, but he's a politician and he's, he's running on the basis of, you know, I made the city better, we have no crime, the schools are great. I mean, you know, he has to live <laughs> in a world of politics, I don't. But there's a lot, I live in Baltimore, I'm vested in it, I have a lot of affection for it, I want it to get better. Um, it, we were not trying to stick our finger in Baltimore's eye for the fun of it. And one of the things that's implied is that the American city matters, you know, 80% of us uh, 85%, I think, actually, of Americans live in cities uh, or, in, or in metropolitan areas, I should say. And we, um, we're oriented towards the city, and yet we have this love-hate relationship with it. Um, and yet the city's capable of producing the polyglot nature of living together, closely compacted, uh, has an incredibly creative dynamic to it. And none more so than in New Orleans, where the improbability of, of the European uh, instrumentation for music, European instruments, coupled with uh, flatted third and seventh notes from Africa, created an art form 
um, that has gone over the world. You can't go to uh, Timbuktu or, or, you know, or, or anywhere and not run into a, a John Coltrane tape or a Michael Jackson tape or, or, or a Muddy Waters CD. I mean, this stuff has traveled, you know, long after nobody remembers my country for anything, not even baseball. Um, they're going to remember it for African-American music. That, that's probably the, the singular gift we've given to the world that's going to endure. I mean, it just keeps, it keeps mutating and going on and on, but it, but it goes everywhere. Uh, and it could not have happened uh, without a place like New Orleans. It happened within like eight square blocks of New Orleans, which is a city that was French, and then it was Spanish, then it was French again, then it was American, uh, and, and it was it was a, a slave culture, then it was a freed, you know, freed slave, you know, Creole, not Creole. It is, it is, um, it can only happen in America. And so there's something, you know, one of the things that didn't convey with the wires, I wanted it to, was that the city matters. If we're going to survive, we're going to survive, you know, as city folk. This is who we are. Um, and we're going to learn to live together and to tell each other the truth about things, or we're not. And so New Orleans is an extension of that, and Treme, I hope, will be an extension of that discussion. Okay. David, thank you for your patience with me. Let's get some questions from the audience. There's a couple of microphones. If you've got a question, stick your hand in the air. <coughs> Halfway up the back there, the guy in the red. Yes, you. <laughs> Keep your hand in the air until you get the mic. <coughs> Hi there. Um, you mentioned the uh, sort of commercialization and perhaps sort of subsequent increased dumbing down of journalism and uh, television. And I'm wondering if you believe, or if, if I'm not sure about this, uh, The Wire has been enough of a commercial success and uh, has made enough money to encourage more intellectual, uh, <laughs> daring, character-driven. I have, I have a little window. In the entertainment industry, I have a little window at this place called HBO, which doesn't rely on advertising. It relies on subscription. In that model, I can survive because I don't need every eyeball. I can let people walk away from the show if they don't like it. I don't have to appease everybody. I don't have to dumb it down. I don't have to have you know, uh, prettier, more scantily clad actresses. I don't need to blow shit up every episode. I can actually write what I want to write and not look over my shoulder. Um, and I can't do that if I have to bring the maximum number of eyeballs to the screen. Advertising is what has made television an inferior storytelling meeting, uh, medium for the last, since its inception. The absence of advertising on paid cable is, is like emancipation. But, um, and HBO is a very lucrative part of Time Warner, and they make money. Um, but even within HBO, there's a, there's a desire to have uh, the next Sopranos or the next Sex in the City. And, 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 you know, whenever you do something that's a little off path, you know, you have 60% of your actors be African American, for example, which is, in my country, it's going to alienate, not in, a not, in a, not in a nasty way, but, you know, there's just a lot of white people going to go, oh, this isn't my story, you know, in that way that human empathy only takes you so far, unfortunately. Um, or the stories are complicated or you don't have a happy ending. Or, or the, the lead actor and the lead actress don't sleep together. You know, it's, the entertainment industry is about money. It's, it's, what, it's what it's about. And, and I've pretty much demonstrated how to marginalize yourself to a certain niche audience. I've, I've shown them exactly how to achieve, and, you know, I, I, I got great reviews and I get to, you know, have conversation. I get to come here and everyone thinks I'm swell and I get to go to um, 
what's his name, uh, Bill Moyers lets me, interviews me and takes me seriously. It's all great. I wouldn't want to be any, I wouldn't want to be somebody else doing, you know, I don't want to have Dick Wolf's checks for law and order. I don't want his, you know, I don't need his residual checks. But Dick Wolf is demonstrating how to make a TV franchise that makes everybody a lot of money. A lot of money. And The Wire is demonstrating sort of how not to do that. And, and that's the lesson that's being learned in, in, in the entertainment industry. Okay, thank you. Another question? Right down in front here. I'm going to tick. Nice shoes, by the way. Did you say thank you. Very glossy. <laughs> Dan Brothers of South Baltimore. <laughs> hey, I was wondering if you'd Couldn't ever feel proud. like doing a, a documentary, like a real life documentary, if that's. Uh, my impulse would be is if I'm going to do documentary, I'm going to I'm going to go back and write prose. That's what I, that's really what I do. And when I'm doing journalism, prose writing is is uh, is to me the more, more precise way of saying exactly what I want to say. Um, so my impulse upon being shown a true story and and wanting to convey it would be to write a magazine article or a book. I, I never would think documentary. It's it's weird, but I just I'm, I'm on either one side of that or the other, I guess. Would you think novel, surrounded by all these great writers and married to a great writer? Well, would you, would you think that's novel? right. I mean, I, I sort of look at, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I am the lesser half of Laura Lippmann of, of that. And she, uh, she writes, uh, uh, you know, I, I see these novels come out and I think, man, that's liberating. You know, first of all, no story meetings right off the bat. No, you know, Ed Burns isn't yelling at you. Um, <laughs> you know, no production meetings. You know, no arguing with the director over the cut. No, no recalcitrant actors. You know, she sits down with her uh, computer, and she makes the book do what she wants the book to do. Um, and it seems really liberating, but it has its own nightmares, I, I know, as well. And it has its own problems um, and its own struggles. And there might come a time, but for right now, um, I kind of find my way to doing something in a novelized fashion with this other medium of television. Sure. And now, you know, it's, I got the, I have this thing with HBO and it's like they've got the crack pipe and it's in my mouth and I don't, you know, <laughs> check back with me in three years when my deal runs out and, you know, maybe I'll be writing my first novel, you know. <laughs> Asking Laura how it's done. Yeah. Okay, another question? Right at the very back. Ooh. Keep your hands up for just a second. I'll, I'll try and, we'll get the second. Can you bring that other mic around as well? Right at the back, and then there's a guy somewhere halfway down. Put, okay, the guy with the glasses, and I know there's two more back there. So the guy with the, just put your hand in the air. Just <coughs> yeah, James Murdoch at the um, the sister festival, the Edinburgh Television Festival, just the other day. He took a major pot shot in his keynote speech at the BBC, and said the future for television and the bottom line for television should be profit. What's your own feeling on that? Well, his last line of his speech, and I didn't see the speech, but the last line of the written speech, so I assume he said it, was that the, the only guarantor of independence is profit. Um, and I sort of understand where he, where I hope, I'm going to be charitable with him, where I think he was trying to go. Uh, where he ultimately ended up was somewhere to the right of, uh, of uh, George Orwell's worst nightmare in terms of, you know, uh, taking, taking disparate words and shaping them to a sentence that it, you know, could, could not be more offensive. Um, but what I think he was trying to say was in order for journalism to be independent and effective, 
It needs a legitimate revenue stream. And I actually agree with him. I agree with his dad on one point. And it, believe me, it's not on the political spectrum. Um, I agree with his father that journalism, you have to pay for journalism. It's not free. The internet, the great vanity of the internet was it's, you know, information wants to be free. But information isn't free. It, it is not, you know, you cannot get legitimate journalism. You cannot have impartial people sent at great expense to Fallujah or uh, Helmand Province or, uh, or London or Washington or Tokyo uh, to acquire news, to send photographers with them, to have competent editors to judge that, to, to, to make sure that the, the crap doesn't make it into the, into the newspaper or onto the website. That all costs money. It co it's a huge cost center. And the idea that we're all going to get it for free and it's going to be good, you know, when, when, you, know, when you, you get what you pay for, and when you pay for free, you get shit. And the internet, by and large, there's some very good commentary, and there's some very, um, there's, it's wonderful that there are more, de it's de democratic and there are more voices. I love that part of it. I love the internet. But it is not providing first-generation journalism. And if you don't have respect for what first-generation journalism is, or you don't seriously consider how, it, how it's acquired and how cost-intensive it is, then you can very flippantly say, oh, well, that, you know, you know, we'll, we'll get that there are a thousand points of light. Everyone will be twittering at the same time. You know, in my city, nothing's being covered anymore properly. Um, police shootings are happening, and nobody's questioning the nature of the shooting. Information, public information, documents are being withheld, and the newspaper's too poor to sue anymore. You know, we're not going to pay lawyers to sue. We don't have any money left. We're in bankruptcy. It is, it's a horror show. And I understand what, what Murdoch is saying when he says we have to charge online. And we have to, now, it would be a lot better if they hadn't spent the last 20 years eviscerating the newsrooms, losing their veterans, making their product weaker. You know, the newspapers have brought this on themselves. However, as much as it's fun to chastise them for their, you know, for, for basically behaving as if they were Detroit in the 70s, you know, we're a monopoly, you know, we can make, we can make any piece of shit. Nobody's going to buy a Japanese car, you know, that was, it's the same thing with newspapers. That's what they did. Instead of you know, chastising them as fun, but it's not going to solve the problem. The internet is not going to stop. You know, I, don't, I don't care about newspapers as paper. I don't, you know, delivering it to doorsteps, uh, you know, cutting down trees and delivering it, that is an anachronism. But I care about the newsroom. You know, I worked in a newsroom where there were so many professional voices who were as smart or smarter than I was and they, stopped, they saved me from writing stupid stuff when I was younger or when I was less experienced. There were guys who covered beats for eight, nine, ten years, so they knew everything about the environment or about it, public education. And, uh, I believe in the newsroom. And, and the only way to get a newsroom is to pay journalists. And the only way to pay journalists is to pay for the product. And that's going to have to happen if, if Western society is going to have uh, the legitimate um, aspect of, 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 of self-criticism on a political level. And so I get that part. And I'm sort of with the Murdochs as far as the idea of the BBC has these uh, websites, which are wonderful, and you get news for free. But that's actually destroying the independent press in this country. They're right. Um, how you get from there to the idea that, that profit itself is, is, is a paragon of, of political independence, you know, that's just silly. That's hyperbole. But the core value of what the, the Murdochs are saying, I think, is right. The problem is, is that when you say, yes, they need a revenue stream, what they don't need is 37, 38, 40% profits, which is what, in my country, newspapers were demanding. And I think probably here, too, 
you know, how do you, how do you, how do you get people to put back into the industry what they need to put back to grow the industry to make it better? You know, once you give them their profit, are they going to invest it wisely in making the product better? Or are they just going to run and take profits? In my country, they ran and took profits. So it's a, it's a bad situation. Okay. Uh, just uh, two rows up. You've got a question there. And can you give the mic to the person in red on the second row back? Just there, that gentleman there. Yeah. So you first, sir. Um, I'm one of the 11 people who read your book when it first came out in hardback. I reviewed it, in fact, as a journalist, and I thought it was brilliant at the time. And I'm also one of the journalists who suffered everything that you've talked about. Uh, two questions. One, um, you said that by doing what you did, you could alienate a lot of your audience because a lot of the people in the, f in the wire were African-Americans. And I wondered what, particularly because of the portrayal of the drugs side, what African-Americans maybe had come back to you and said. And the other question is, I, it was suggested that the wire was kind of cut off at the end, that you were kind of given a cut-off point, and whether you'd had an over-reaching over arc that you got to the end of, or whether you kind of had to stop it partway through. No, the end, the end, the end was the end. Uh, we wanted to end on the theme of the media because we wanted, the last question was really, if we got anything at all right in the first four seasons about what, um, what the American uh, dystopia is and, and wh why we can no longer even recognize problems, much less solve them, um, then the last question was, well, what were we paying attention to? You know, what, what preoccupied us while we, while we hollowed out our society? It's, it's all for you, David. It's all for you. <laughs> If, it goes, if it's 21, I'll know I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so ultimately, we got, I mean, the only, the only thing we got, we, they gave us exactly what we asked for. It's, that's, that's the only fair way to put it. Um, somewhere too late in the process to turn back. Because if you, if you know the whole run of the show, you know that once the Marlowe story starts at the beginning of season four, it has to, it's a two-year arc, and, it has to, and the end has to be in, uh, season five. Somewhere in the middle of that arc, one of the writers came up with an with a idea that would have made a good season on its own, a theme that we had not thought about, which was immigration, um, which is a big uh, issue in, 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 you know, as a country of immigrants, it's a, it's a fascinating dynamic as to how everybody approaches that and why we, why we, why, why we can't deal with that as Americans, honestly. Um, and as soon as, as soon as David Mills was the guy, and as soon as he said it, I thought, oh man, that's one we missed. Because we couldn't go back. It would not be like season six. It had to be season four. And then five and six would have been the ones that were four and five. So, you know, it was really a matter of we couldn't stop. We'd have been off the air too long researching immigration. It took us months to research stuff for each season. So we just missed that one. Um, and, you know, I never even asked HBO because what was I going to say? Take the show down. Let's get out of pre-production. Go back. Grab that one. You know, that it, it would have been insane. Um, as far as the, the African-American, listen, nobody, there's nothing monolithic, you know. There's, you know, everybody comes to, to, to what they like or don't like as individuals. Um, but one of the things I was most proud of was when we, would, we filmed this show in West Baltimore, in East Baltimore, in the neighborhoods that are, that are struggling with the exact thing that we were depicting. And when somebody like Bubbles or, or Wendell, you know, uh, uh, Wendell Pierce or, or Michael K. Williams would come out of their trailer to, to work, um, the level of, 
camaraderie is the only thing I could say. It was like the idea, you know, there's, there, there were 300 TV shows about the viable America, about the America that's moneyed and, you know, gated and sealed off hermetically from, from most of the problems. Um, and then there, there was this one show where they were making legitimate drama about the America that got left behind. In the America that got left behind, there was such an excitement at seeing their stories rendered as legitimate drama, as, as taken seriously in a way. The idea that these lives actually were in the balance and they mattered. Um, that the connection between people in the streets of Baltimore and the actors was so intense and so like, you know, I mean, people wanted Bubs to get clean in the worst way. People wanted um, Omar to succeed in the worst. It was, it, it, was, it was a passion that, you know, it was not our intent when we made the show. We were just making a show about the city we knew. Um, but I, I did enjoy that. I thought that was, that was, there was something subversive in there that I really liked. And it mm. got good to me. We're sort of out of time, but you've got a mic up there, the, the person in red. So just a brief question and a brief answer. Hi. Um, I really, really enjoyed the show. Um, thank you very much for excellent TV. Um, I just wanted to ask, you covered a lot of um, people who were trying valiantly to make the city a better place. Ultimately, after all your experiences, what do you think is going to win out? Do you think it's going to fall even more into disrepair, or do you think that all this good's going to come to, to some fruition? Uh, I am a pessimist. Um, I am. It uh, uh, doesn't mean I don't uh, enjoy uh, a day the same way as everybody else, but I don't, you know, listen, my, my, I'm watching my country now flail around and lie to itself about something that you guys figured out in, in the early 1950s, which is national health care. And uh, if we're this incompetent at, ha at having a serious dialectic over something that is eminently solvable, um, imagine, imagine how badly we're going to do on something that is much more um, uh, uh, over, overarching and, and, and universal, like, I don't know, say global warming. Um, you know, there, there's something that, you know, my, my, I just think the, that the problems are systemic. And we have moneyed our political system so much, and, and, and we have mistaken unrestrained capitalism for a social framework. You know, I'm not a Marxist, but I don't believe that capitalism, the raw capitalism, that pure profit, in the words of Mr. Murdoch, is, uh, is democracy and independence and all things good. You know, I'm glad that we have capitalism. It's the only way to generate mass wealth that has been proven to work consistently and effectively. I'm glad it's in the toolbox, but I in no way mistake it for, the, for, for what builds a just society. But a lot of people in my country do, and they've made that mistake since, since, uh, the, since the administration of Ronald Reagan and, and Margaret Thatcher. And, you know, that has, that has been the paradigm for how to govern a country and how to build a society. So until, until that is seriously questioned, um, and seriously questioned in a way that starts to break down the notion of, you know, he with the most money gets the most power, um, I, don't think, I don't think we're going to solve many, many big problems. Um, and, and I think it is going to get worse. And on that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, David. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
that is all we've, we've got time for. Uh, before I ask you to thank David, can I ask you also to stay in your seats so I can get Elvis out of the building, so he can go into the signing tent and he'll be waiting for you when he, he will be happy, uh, happy to answer other questions from you there, I'm sure, as you're buying and getting his uh, book signed. Thank you all for coming, being thank so uh, attractive. Please thank David Stein for a thoughtful and thoughtful welcome you back. Thanks, man. Great. Right. Great. Thank you.